0: the scripture reading is from John 11, 1 through 45. Up. <laughs> now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus Lord, him who you love Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, he has fallen asleep. He's going to be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask for of him, ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And anyone who, who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to him, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here. And is calling for you. And when she heard it, she quickly got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, She knelt at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would soon see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Kind of feels like that one ought to have a halftime show in there somewhere, doesn't it? (laughs) Does anybody need a bathroom break? You're welcome to take your time. Well, good morning again. Uh, It is wonderful as always to be here with you guys uh, here in the chapel, and to those of you uh, who are joining us online, thank you for being a part of this community as well. We appreciate it very, very much. Um, my name is Dan Cook and I'm the teaching pastor here at Genesis and it is always, always a pleasure to be with you. Um, I got new glasses this week and I need bifocals, only I got stubborn and didn't get bifocals. So there may be a lot of this going on today, just so you know. <laughs> in fact, I may just even go without them. Um, today's the fifth Sunday in Lent, which means that next Sunday is Palm Sunday, which means next, that following week is Holy Week. And I don't know about you, but Lent has flown by for me this, week, this year. But before we get to Holy Week, we have this one more week of considering what it means to return and to repent towards God and towards God's trajectory for our lives. And there was an important question that came up in the book study that we're dealing with this week or have been dealing with during Lent. And shameless plug, uh, if you haven't considered being part of one of these book studies, I really strongly uh, recommend them. Um, even as the person that's obsessively leading them, I'm learning a ton. Uh, and it's been just an amazing group of people to be with uh, each week as we go through a book that talks about peacemaking and talks about Holy Week and talks about a lot of the things that we've been talking about throughout the course of Lent. So again, shameless plug for that. But, but there was a question that came up in, uh, in the book study this week that I thought was an important one, and I wanted to incorporate it and see if maybe over the course of today we can arrive at some sort of answer for it. And that question is, why are we here? I mean, in all seriousness, why, why do we do this each week? Why do we gather together in this room each week? Is it just a matter of fellowship? Is it just a matter of community? Or is there something, is there something bigger and more fundamental at play? I'm hoping throughout the course of today we come to some kind of answer for that. I want to take a swing at it anyway. Before we dive into the passage that my mom so ably read, I want to read another passage from John. I want to start actually at the very beginning of John's gospel. I want to read you the first five verses of John 1, which say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and without Him not one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John starts his gospel with one of the most beautiful, poetic portions, in my opinion, in the entirety of the Bible. And there are obvious connections there to Genesis and to the creation stories, but that's not what I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is the way John talks about life, because I think that's what connects to our passage for today. Because John asserts that all life down to the very atoms and molecules, all life that we interact with came through Christ. And there are fascinating books and journal articles, I mean, I find them fascinating, that address the partnership of faith and science as opposed to those who would make faith and science enemies. But the point I want to make today isn't about physical, the physical mechanics of creation. The point I want to make today is about the theological truth that if all creation came through Christ then Christ is invested, is in all creation. Christ is on the side of life. And to be very, very clear, I am not making a reproductive freedom argument that's a completely separate sermon. I'm saying that when it comes to the life that is right in front of us, that is right here, that we interact with on a daily basis, that life, Christ is all and in all. And that may seem like a very basic tenet of our faith, but it's a tenet that gets, I think, threatened on a fairly daily basis. We live in the creation that is beautiful and amazing and is broken and it is overcome by chaos and that chaos threatens to overwhelm our very basic sense of hope in something better on a daily basis. What do I mean by that? I mean literally every commentary I consulted on this passage from John, every single one of them talked about war now, depending on when the commentary was written, there were different wars that they were talking about, but even that in and of itself, I think, says something. Every single one of them talked about war. Why? Because when you have a passage that is talking about life and life after death, war is the antithesis of that. War is anti-life. We have spent hundreds and hundreds of years philosophically, theologically trying to justify war, go all the way back to Augustine and his just war theory. But the simple truth remains, war is anti-life. And it's not just the people that get killed or injured, it's their families, it's their livelihoods, it's their cities and towns. If those things aren't destroyed, they're irrevocably changed. War is anti-life, is anti-Christ. But it's not just war that feeds the growing chaos in our culture, right? There's an immigration crisis going on right now. There's a failure both in terms of security and in terms of conscience. Nobody who's banging a drum about immigration is really actually doing something about it. There's a growing number and normalization of hate and hate groups in this country, especially when it comes to anti-Semitism. In a passage that used the word Jews a lot, we have to be careful because it's real easy to turn that corner. We can't do that. There's a scourge in this country of fentanyl and of lives that are being destroyed by this drug that just boggles the mind when you start hearing the numbers of it coming into this country. It's, it's insanity. There are mass shootings, and the danger, the very real danger of becoming numb to them. There was just another one last weekend in Milwaukee, and I'm reading the headline, one killed, four injured in a shooting, and I'm thinking, okay, what's the number again? Is it four that constitutes a mass shooting? This is where we're at now. We're playing with numbers trying to figure out whether it qualifies as a mass shooting or not. That's a problem. And there's economic fears. Inflation, banking security. we got the Fed this week trying to decide about raising interest rates. Is it going to affect inflation too much? Is it going to tank more banks? What are we doing? I mean, the options aren't great. And that instills a lot of fear in a lot of us that don't really understand how those things work. All of these things, all of these things and plenty more that I could list are a threat to the life that we have been created to live through Christ. The life that Christ is in, the life that Christ is advocating for, all of these things are a threat to that life. But I submit to you that Christ himself is life and is the hope for life after death. And that, that's why we're here, to be reminded of that each and every week. Because there's a whole world out there that's threatening to overwhelm us on a daily basis, and we need desperately. I need desperately that reminder. So with that very lengthy introduction, let's dive into today's text, shall we? The story of Jesus raising Lazarus is a lot of things. It is the seventh of the signs, as I do scare quotes, that John mentions in the first half of his gospel. John's gospel is sort of broken into two pieces. There's the book of signs, and there's seven different miracles that he describes Jesus having done each miracle telling us something about the nature of Christ, about the nature of God. And there's the book of glory that comes after it, which is Jesus' path to death and resurrection. It is not a coincidence at all that the final sign that John describes is a resurrection, is bringing Lazarus back to, to life. That's very much intentional. So it is the seventh of those signs. That story is also the story of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha and how they wrestle with their faith in the context of the devastating loss of their brother. There's depth and nuance there to explore. It's also a lesson on the danger of complacency. If you look at verse 37 there, some of the folks that were around said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? There's a danger in believing in God and God's miracles, that we then rely on God, fully on God and God's miracles to save us or to change things. That complacency can be dangerous, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I believe at its core, this story of Jesus raising Lazarus is a story of Jesus' commitment to life. And we see that because as we go through this story, Jesus faces obstacle after obstacle to him bringing Lazarus back from the dead, but he persists through all of them. I want to list four. And as I'm going through these, I want you to think about the obstacles that we talked about earlier that we face in our lives and how they relate. Obstacle number one is His disciples. In verse 7, Jesus makes the decision to go to Bethany. Bethany is in Judea. And Judea is where in chapter 10 of John's gospel, Jesus was nearly stoned to death. As He was preaching, as He was teaching, He dared to say that the Father and I are one. That's chapter 10, verse 30. The Father and I are one. And that was enough for people to start picking up stones and threatening his life. So when he tells his disciples, we're headed back to Bethany, they're like, hang on a minute. You were just nearly killed there. Are you sure you want to go back? Maybe we're better off, you know, sending a card or some flowers or whatever it is. Jesus says, no, we're going to go. And they're so convinced of his death that you see there in verse 16, Thomas saying, let us go also that we may die with him. It was a serious threat. But Jesus persisted because Jesus is committed to life and Jesus went anyway. Obstacle number two is a lack of understanding. When Jesus arrives at Bethany, starting in verse 20, you see he has this conversation with Martha. And in that conversation, he's trying to reveal to her what he is about to do. And whether it's because of the grief that she's feeling or whether it's because like so many other people, she hasn't grasped the very paradigm shift that Jesus is, that he embodies. She's unable to track what he's trying to tell her. He starts talking about resurrection. He talks about being the life. And she says, well, yeah, you know, there's going to be the resurrection at the end and we're all going to come back and I guess I'll see my brother again. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But Jesus persists. He doesn't rebuke Martha. He doesn't embarrass her. He just keeps going towards life because he's committed to life. And that's what brings us hope. Obstacle number three is a failed partnership. I mentioned verse 737 earlier where there were some folks there who were bothered that Jesus last week had healed this blind man, but now he couldn't stop Jesus from dying. What they fail to grasp is that God wants to work with and through humanity. Instead of sitting there and waiting for God to do the work, We're here to be the hands and the feet of God, and they failed to grasp that, which really is a failure to grasp all of Scripture, because you see that repeated throughout Scripture, that God wants to work not on us specifically, but through us and with us. That was the entire point of of creation. The, The healing of the blind man was as much about pointing out that failure, the failure of the way people had treated that blind man as it was about actually healing his blindness but they missed that lesson. Jesus hears this kind of grumbling and dissatisfaction. He's heard it before. He'll hear it again. And I just imagine it must be maddening for him. These people are so committed to this idea of a warrior king messiah, and he's trying to change that entire paradigm. He's trying to say in the kingdom, it is service. It is service coming under people and lifting them up. That's the power of the kingdom. And you keep going for the sword. You keep going for the hammer and trying to push people down. And they can't let go of that. And it's got to be just frustrating as all get out for them. But he persists. He doesn't rebuke those folks. He doesn't embarrass them. In fact, in verse 35, he enters into their very grief and weeps with them. Verse 35, to me, is one of the most important verses in the entirety of the Bible. Because here, Jesus knows what he's about to do. He's known he's going to raise Lazarus all along. And yet, in that moment, as people are unable to grasp what he's about to do, he stops <clears throat> and he enters into their grief with them. And there's all kinds of discussions in the commentaries, again, about the Greek verbiage there, whether that's that weeping is out of sadness and grief or whether it's out of anger and frustration. I kind of think it's a bit of both. I think God wants us to know in that moment that as we grieve, as we are saddened by whatever loss comes into our lives, God is in that with us, that God has experienced that in a human form and knows where we're at, knows what we're feeling, and is with us in solidarity in those moments. I think that's crucial. And I think it's very real that Jesus was frustrated as all get out in that moment By the very existence of death. Because if Jesus was there at creation, if all life came through Jesus, he knows death was never supposed to be part of the equation. And yet here it is. And the ripple effects that death has, that has to be maddening for him. (coughs) Pardon me. Obstacle number four is traditional belief, as I was just saying. In verse 39, Jesus orders the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb to be removed. And here steps up Martha and says, hey, Lord, already there's going to be a stench because he's been in there four days. Maybe you don't want to do this. Now, four days is important, not just because of decomposition, although that's part of it, but because there was a Jewish belief that the spirit would linger around a body for three days. But on the fourth day, you're well and truly gone. So I can't help but wonder as if in that moment, as Martha's saying, hey, if you roll away that tomb, it's going to really smell maybe what she's really worried about is she's picking up on what's about to happen and she's worried it's not going to work. That Lazarus isn't going to come out of the, That Jesus is going to order Lazarus to come out of the tomb and Lazarus is going to be dead because it's four days, right? Everybody knows the Spirit's gone after three days. But Jesus didn't let that stop him because Jesus is life, because Jesus is committed to life, and because Jesus knew he was bringing Lazarus back from the dead. The bottom line is that everybody that Jesus is encountering here is refusing to believe that life cannot be overcome by death. But that truth that life cannot be overcome by death, that is the gospel. Back in November, I preached a sermon and I tried to describe the gospel as God's promise to restore and renew everything that is corrupt and broken in this creation and that God sent Jesus and the Spirit to help lead us in participating in that restorative mission. The gospel promises life, not just any life, but a life in partnership with Christ, a life in partnership with God. And that's why I read that first section from John. John 1.4, in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Notice the past tense there. The darkness did not overcome it. This battle between life and death, Genesis, has been fought and it has been won. In a sense, it was fought and won at the very foundation of the world. Jesus' life and death put the exclamation point on a sentence that was already written. And it is crucial to grab a hold of that. It's crucial to hold on to that because that's the hope. That's the hope that we cling to as all of the chaos of the world threatens to overwhelm us. I say this all the time. The enemy wants to do two things. Rob us of hope and convince us that we're alone. Because if we feel hopeless and we feel all alone in this world, we are capable of grotesque forms of evil. But Jesus has come and Jesus is saying, and Jesus is saying in this passage, there is always hope and you are never alone. That's the truth. The enemy is lying constantly and consistently, and we need to ignore that message. The story of Jesus raising Lazarus ultimately is meant to give us hope. Watching Jesus overcome obstacle after obstacle in the persistent pursuit and valuation of life is designed to give us hope. So that we, faced with that long list of brokenness that I talked about earlier, which threatens to overwhelm us and threatens to steal our hope, so that we can hold on to the hope of God's promise, the hope of the gospel, the hope that life can come out of death, the hope that that light will not be overcome by the darkness. So at the beginning, I talked about an important question. Why are we here? Why do we do this each week? In a world where hope seems in short supply, I think we come here, I know I come here, for a weekly reminder of that light. In a world where darkness seems to win all too often, I think we come here to be reminded of that light, that light that is in Christ and that light that is in each and every one of us. That light will never be overcome. And that is our hope. No matter how small that light may seem, no matter how giant the darkness may seem, that light is still there. And that light is in Christ. If you look at today's artwork, you see Lazarus' hand outstretched. And I imagine, what is he reaching for? Just the outside of the cave? Or has he been bathed in darkness for four days and he is reaching for that light? He is reaching for Christ who is calling him out because he knows That Christ is the light of life, and Christ is on the side of life. And in Christ is our life, and is that light, and that light cannot be overcome. Our hope, Genesis, is found in Christ. It's found in Christ's commitment to life. All life, everything that was made, came through Him. And nothing that we experience didn't come through Him. So everything contains a piece of him. Everything contains a piece of that light. And that is what we, are, that's what we hold on to week to week. That's our hope. That's what we cling to when the darkness threatens to overwhelm us. And perfect timing for the kids because I'm just about done. Would you, hear, you understand what I'm saying? Do you see it? Do you see Lazarus reaching for that light? Do you see the hope that is in that light? And the hope that gets restored each and every time we get filled up here, together, as a community, as followers of Christ. That light never goes out. That light never is overcome. And that, Genesis, that is our hope. Amen? Amen.